Hey listeners, it's Adam. And this is Joshua Townsend Zellner. And this episode is different from other episodes. It's a guest again. We've been curating and looking for the type of people we wanted on this mm-hmm. show, people who could speak really articulately and specifically about how they work creatively and shed light on the storytelling process. And we found her. Yes. Tanya Swirling. So I know you guys like who's Tanya Swirling. Okay. So I guess I'll give you the credits, although I always hate giving people credits because they're like, oh, now we believe she has something to say. But anyways, she, <laughs> she's the, been the editor on Glow, Westworld, Six Feet Under, Big Love. You know, like if there was a major show that you cared about, she's probably done it. Yeah. Um, but more importantly than that, she's just so focused. What were we saying after she left, like that she was one of the most articulate interviews? We would ask her a question and there would not be one um. There'd be like, oh, this is the answer. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, the depth of entry that that she does in our interview is insane. Yeah. If everybody was blessed to have someone like this person on their side in a creative project, sky's the limit. I think that part of what Josh and I've been trying to do is bring you people from the part of the creative process that you might not know about, particularly in a collaborative genre like TV. Uh, and editors are play a huge role. Mm-hmm. You know, she talks really well about how she will cut scenes in different ways to make them feel and look different, to, mm-hmm. to tell the story in a different way. And so anyone who works in a visual medium, I think will find this fascinating. And even prose writers who write novels, I've even had this conversation with people about like, how do you visually enter a scene? And that's something a fil- uh, film editor thinks a lot about. So it's a fascinating interview. We wish you the best in that it helps you with your own process. If only f- that you just learn about the patience and the work ethic of Tanya. Yeah, yeah. And, and the cross-discipline aspect that comes in to this art form, and it is an art form, uh, and what we can all learn from it as, as, as she explains her process, and we can take the, the essence of that and put it into our work. And also be aware of, of the, you know, when you write a scene that's, you know, a page and a half, an editor is gonna work on that for 10 hours. So, yeah. you know, really make it, really make it sing, make it work as an actor, as a writer, as a director, yeah. Now arriving downtown Santa Monica Station. Hey, Adam, it's time for Notes on Your Notes. I'm Adam Lesser. And I am still Joshua Townsend. Welcome to Notes on Your Notes, a podcast about the creative process and storytelling. I'm super excited. Super excited. Another amazing guest this week. Yes. We endeavor on the show to bring so many elements of the storytelling process to you. Um, and so today we have a very famous, very amazing editor. Mm-hmm. Tanya. Hey, Tanya. Introduce <laughs> yourself, Tanya, to our listeners. I don't know about famous. Um, <laughs> my name is Tanya Swirling, and yeah, I'm a film editor. been doing it about... I'm going to give away my age. <laughs> a few years. Long enough to know. Long enough More to know. More than 10 years. More than 10 years, More yeah. More than 10 years, yeah. okay. And less than a century. I, I never edited film, but I did start when we were editing on film. So on I, film. I have that background. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah. Tony's being bashful. That She's worked me. with some very famous people. 
<laughs> Very. I have, I've, I have worked with some good people, yeah. You know, I actually wanted to start this episode with a really basic question, and it's something that came up when we were talking, which is I think a lot of people don't actually understand what you do and, like, how critical it is to the process. So if someone is a writer or an actor and they've never stepped inside an editing bay and seen what you do, how do you explain to people what it is, where you are in the process and what role you play? And is bay a good term? I mean, because sometimes people think of like water and the bay watch. And I mean, you know, because in editing bay, mm-hmm. it's like it's more um, of like a lagoon. Yeah, that may even be incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> no, they st- we still use bay, bay, and I like it. I'm I'm a water person, so okay, yeah, I appreciate that. Well, are you are you like Aquarius? Or no, no, I just like water. <laughs> <laughs> I try to keep Josh away from astrology as much as possible, and I just fail. Don't. Just it's don't. a happy place for me. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, Good. Happy place. Yeah, um, I would say editing is. I think in, in the past I've likened it to being kind of like a thief, basically. Mm. Mm. And that is that I get to steal all the best bits from mm. everybody's work and put them together. Hopefully I succeed in doing that. Now we work on the computer, so we get bins of material, and there are little frames that represent those those takes. And we still get a line script. We still get a script that tells us, you know, what coverage equals what performance and what camera and what angle and all those things. And our job is just to sift through all that material and assemble the scene in the best way we can. And it's a, it's a long process. For instance, we could get material for one scene. A scene could be, say, two pages long. And two pages could equal two minutes, mm. depending on what the material is. So the director may choose to film that scene simply with a wide shot showing everybody in the room, and then maybe picking up a couple images of key people. If it's a scene between two people, then it would probably just be, you know, one shot of you, one shot of me. Uh, Sometimes they'll do two cameras at the same time, so they'll get a medium shot of you and then a really close-up shot of you. So depending on how much material the director chooses to shoot for a scene, I'm meant to sit and kind of go through everything. I'm meant to go through everything and basically assemble the scene the first time in the Mm. way that I envisioned it from reading the script. Mm. And I typically let the film tell me what it wants to do out the gate because I don't want to force it to do anything yet. So, for instance, um, if a character walks in a room and the camera follows them and takes them to to a seated position, um, I'm probably not going to have them start to walk and then edit to them in another angle sitting down because I can tell that the director's intent was to follow that character in and have them sit down Mm. and that's what has brought us into the scene Mm. so there are certain things that are without question you know I'm going to use that in the scene Mm. so you're actually be you're you have so much experience that you can and and a language you've developed with 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 directors that you can actually tell what their intention was between the script and the footage that you get? Typically. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, ideally. Yeah. Especially with directors you've worked with before, right? Because you're more used to their their language. Yeah. Or you can talk in shorthand. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, more and more they're using multiple cameras just because they can. They're less expensive these days, so you can have two, three cameras on set, whether you need them or not. And a lot of times that second camera, which we typically call the B camera, is just 
because they've got it. So mm-hmm. the scene may very well intend to play in a two shot and just let us live, let us, the audience, live in, let, you know, us watching these two people sit in front of us. Mm-hmm. The B camera is picking up a close up mm-hmm. just because they have it. So my initial gut is like, oh, well, the director wanted to cut to a close up at some point. They shot mm-hmm. a close up. And the truth is, no, they just had a camera there. Maybe, <laughs> maybe someone, in, maybe they were just protecting themselves. Maybe they wanted the studio to believe, right. oh, we're covered here. We've got a shot of the guy in case we need it. Yeah. When in fact, no, I want this done in one shot. So I will always, mm. I will always do versions of scenes trying different things because I want to explore. It could be better. Maybe the director thought, oh, this is going to work great in one shot. And then we watch it and we realize, mm, you know, the performance wasn't exactly great for these two lines. You can tell the actor's kind of trying to find it. Maybe we should make an edit here. Maybe we should cut into the, the coverage for a couple of beats yeah. to help that performance. Yeah. And then we can drop back to the wide again and finish there. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I always work in that way just because I know down the line someone may say, hey, we, we need to do this, so I'll have it in my back pocket. And yeah. the challenge with, with my job is be, because we get so much footage these days, it's kind of hard to get through it all. It's kind of hard to mm. anticipate every version someone might want to try. And because we're not on film, it's not like, oh, shoot, I, I cut that frame out and it's on the floor now. I don't know where it is, mm. you know, because you're on the computer. You can do many, many versions. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What I love about when you talk about your work in terms of process is that you see all the imperfection. And like we're so used to seeing this finished end product of a perfectly done TV show, even at very high levels. I mean, you worked at very high levels, shows like Westworld, and like that there are always going to be parts of the process that don't work perfectly. And you are responsible partially to helping make the best version of that come through. And you use a word a lot sometimes, I find super interesting, you use the word intent a lot. And do you mean like the intent and emotionally for what that scene is supposed to feel like visually, what it's supposed to be, all of that? Like, is it almost like you're trying to read from the directors and the writers and the producers, like what the feel of that moment is supposed to be? Yeah, for sure. Because um, I, I do think that when we all start our process, we intend to do something. We intend to tell a good story. We intend to provoke or evoke. We We have an intention. And because there are so many different creative people involved in the process, everyone's intention might be different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the director, what the director sees in the script might be quite different from what the writer had intended initially on the page. Mm-hmm. And when we get to the editing room process, really, truly, we try and start there. We try and honor the script. We try and honor the director's vision as much as we can because that was the initial intent. But if it doesn't work for whatever reason, we need to adjust it. Yeah. And so it, it may not necessarily follow the anyone's in, uh, original intent. It's so funny, Josh and I were talking about this on a recent episode. Like, you know, as a writer, there are certain scripts I go back to and read again and again. Um, Tony Gurrow's script from Michael Clayton or Nora Ephron's script from Harry Met Sally or The Verdict by David Mamet. And um, it seems like on the page... When I read these scripts, everything fits perfectly. Every scene leads to the next. Everything that's set up pays off. Narratively, it works perfectly. Although my huge regret with all these scripts is that I could never have read them 
for something like The Verdict, which was made, I think, in 1982 with Paul Newman, I could never read that script without seeing it through the lens of Paul Newman's performance and Sidney Lumet's direction. And we've talked about this, which is that like sometimes at a stage in the process, like maybe the script level, something can seem so perfect and then you go out and shoot it and it can seem so perfect and then Uh and then then it can go to edit right and then suddenly it doesn't have that same feel and it doesn't work and and someone is not moved like if there's an emotional moment and you've also said the flip side can happen right like sometimes stuff does not seem like the dailies don't seem great and and you get to the edit booth and like a talented editor can just make it hit that note it's supposed to hit or, or tell that story it's supposed to tell. And I was just like wondering from your perspective, what do you think happens? Like, what do you think goes on in those processes <laughs> where something that should, that looks one way at one part of the process starts to look a different way in another part? I think when we read, if we have a good imagination, we're filling in those blanks. So mm-hmm. when, a, when a writer very uh, describes something very well, mm-hmm. your imagination, you know, sees what that writer gave you now you may picture it slightly differently i mean you may read a a thing about a character and you might picture an african-american character for whatever reason Mm -hmm. and the writer always thought no this is an asian american you know you you, i think the reader brings a lot to Mm. what it is that they're reading and you visualize it i know when i read i i visualize the scenario and i think then when you take that work and you give it to a director, their their visual visualization of that is different than mm-hmm. the writer. I mean, hopefully it's close enough. I mean, hopefully there's right. a, there's a total collaboration there where, you know, if the writer intended this this long beautiful introduction to a character and the director decided that he's going to start on a, an extreme close up of this person's face, right. that's a very different opinion of how to introduce a character. Just by hearing you and listening to you, I'm getting the I'm getting the idea. This is what I. This is what I'm hearing. Is that you work intuitively, because you have so much information that you can like run a filter th- or however you do it by just by reading the script and knowing maybe knowing the director's taste, you can intuitively go to what the what they're uh, seeing. Is mm-hmm. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think because I work in such a visual aspect of the process. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I know the director does as well, but. I really approach things having to do with with rhythm. There's a lot of, lot about what I do that's that's rhythmic, mm-hmm. and I can read a scene. And if I know, you know, we do a tone meeting. Uh, by the way, I, I do you that's really? Interesting. Typically, we do a tone meeting with the executive producers and the director and the writer. I started thinking today it could be interesting to have the actors involved, but that might be too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, right, leave them out. Yeah, 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 they, just, yeah. They, they need to have their own, <laughs> yeah, their own, own sense of what it is. Yeah. 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 Go to your green room. <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, and and the, the the purpose of that is, I think, for everyone to get get kind of on the same page. Yeah. And I, you know, I've worked with directors before where I did not have a tone meeting, and I got the film and I started cutting the scene, and he and he comes in and says, uh, "No, no, 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 this is supposed to." And I, oh, okay. Had I known, I would mm-hmm. have approached the scene differently, mm-hmm. or or I'll. I'll get uh, tone information from my producers because, you know, television is predominantly a producer's medium. The directors, you know, bring what they bring and they go and mm-hmm. the producers stay with the project and change it. I've had directors say to me, I did not recognize my show on the air. It's completely different from 
what I delivered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a good comment to hear. <laughs> Some people are thankful, and but most are kind of like, mm, all right, I don't know, I don't know what happened yeah. there, but um, that looked a lot like my script, huh? Yeah. And what's interesting about that is if 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 two people don't quite agree what the tone of a scene should be or where what a character's approach to this sh- scene is it's it, you can't you have to stop arguing about it it has to get done so a producer may feel that a director doesn't quite get it is has a different opinion and is unwilling to come around and even do a version i mean we do this all the time where it's like oh you know do one that you like but but make sure you do this the script too you know mm. and the actors are totally hip to that now and they're like no we're not i'm not doing the script because i don't like it and they won't and because what ends up happening is we use the script we don't use the ad lib that the actor thought was a better choice I mean, sometimes we do because sometimes it is better. But yeah. a lot of times their their focus is narrower than ours because we have a sense of the whole series and yeah. they're in the moment and which they should be, and they shouldn't worry about it. They should trust us that we're keeping track of of the of the bigger picture. Um, but when a producer comes to me and says, "Listen," and this actually happened in a recent project, we need this beat in this scene. The director doesn't agree. So please, when you look at the material, see if you can craft that moment because mm. we're going to need it. And you can save it. You don't have to put it in your cut and you don't have to even bring it up to the director, but <laughs> in three weeks time, pull that out of your, out of your back pocket because wow. we, it's really important for us to have that mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't know that if, if they didn't tell me and I, and I wouldn't even be able to, um, help the director in a way like I there are times where if I know the producers want something specific from a scene and either the director didn't agree or didn't get it if I make it and it works and it's interesting there's no reason that a reasonable person Mm -hmm. wouldn't look at it and just see the value Mm -hmm. if it is they may you know I've had that happen many times I didn't picture it this way but it works thank you Um, I've had a, I had so a direct... that, that's like a way of complimenting you. Yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> we don't we don't compliment <laughs> yeah, in I, our I, business. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it takes too much time. <laughs> oh, oh, that's code for a compliment. Yeah, I see. Yeah, <laughs> I had um, you this know, wasn't my idea, <laughs> yeah. but it but seems to work. It still <laughs> yeah, it seems to work. We and then it know. becomes their idea yeah. suddenly. Yeah. I don't know how that happens. I was thinking about doing it this way. <laughs> yeah. um, I had I worked with one director who gave me storyboards for every single scene in an episode yeah and he's a great guy really creative guy really Mm -hmm. great director Mm -hmm. as someone who considers themselves creative and artistic it it constrained me a bit because i thought well i I, what am i I, what am i supposed to do here and so i said you know do you mind if i certainly i'll do a version based on your storyboards but do you mind if i explore beyond that because when he drew those boards and shot those shots, things happened on set. Yeah. Shots didn't work. Performance didn't work. Something didn't work. Right. And again, back to that word intent. I, yeah. I can't, if it doesn't work, I've got to change it. So is it okay if I explore beyond? Did, did, he, did he have a background in doing commercials? I or, or, or Maybe. Or, 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 yeah. Yeah, because that's, re- or either st- comic book stuff or commercials or music videos. Like, yeah. those are the three that I know where they have, like, a really lockdown on. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and a lot, you know, and that's where it became a really big collaboration. You know, he said, as long as you do a version based on my boards, that's fine. And then we'll, 
we'll take a look. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately, I think we had just a big hybrid of, of mm-hmm. his initial ideas and my ideas and, of course, what the film brought ultimately. And, you know, then because we were talking earlier about the structure of, of a show, you know, when you start with a project, you may have 60 minutes of material for a 40-minute show. Something's got to come out whether it's dialogue or that gorgeous first shot you shot establishing San Francisco, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. guess what? We're starting on the door knock. We don't have eight <laughs> seconds or 20 seconds to see wow. San Francisco. So, you know, you have to, it, we talked earlier, it has yeah. to be a major collaboration in the editing room because, mm. because you're not, you, you have a whole new thing now. Is there a joy for you in cutting a scene multiple times and seeing how it feels if you cut it with different shots? Like is, in terms of process, being willing, and really I would imagine you require a degree of patience to be, to be willing to do that, right? Because yeah. a lot of people just want it done. Yeah. But certain, but usually the better people are willing to experiment and play. I think patience is a, is a thing I think all editors have to have because you you do spend time with other people and you need to listen a lot to what they're trying to accomplish and you need to process that and and somehow find a way to make that happen and then yeah when you're working with the material uh you do need to be patient because it's going to sound kind of hokey but things reveal themselves to you Mm -hmm. as you're working with it Mm -hmm. and even though you thought oh this is it's never going to work. Mm-hmm. You try it, and suddenly you're surprised. You know, we have a thing that we were talking earlier about uh, rules, and that we start with certain rules. There are definitely certain editorial rules, I think, that are important. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing is telling a good story. So I like to start with certain rules and and then explore from there. And one rule is there's, there's a line. There's a, a photographic line where the camera sits on one side of or the other. Mm. And typically... What happens with your eye is if the camera's on the left side of the line and one character's looking left to right and one character's looking right to left, it feels like they're talking to each other because they're facing each other. If you move the camera to the other side of the mm-hmm. line, mm-hmm. now those heads are facing the opposite direction. So if I edit from one side of the line to the other side of the line, suddenly two people are looking in the exact same direction. Mm-hmm. They're not facing one another anymore. And mm-hmm. it can be jarring Mm -hmm. and it was it was like a cardinal sin back in the day you can't cross the line Mm -hmm. and now we do it all the time now it's you know a lot of times in fast-paced shows you're crossing the line all over the place and and what can happen is it's you you can lose a sense uh, of geography Mm -hmm. you can get confused and and it's sometimes it's too much for the audience to process Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes all that really matters are the words and if you're listening what you're seeing isn't going to distract you. Mm-hmm. But I always start, if a, if a director has covered a scene from both sides of the line, I will always start on the same side of the line. I, I think it's more elegant. Mm-hmm. Um, if a scene is four pages long and you're sitting in the same shots for four minutes, it can be boring. Even if the material is fantastic and the performances are riveting, you may at a certain point get a little itchy, like uh, I'm claustrophobic in the scene. So you may want to somehow find a way. We did this in Entreatment. I worked on the first season of Entreatment with uh, Rodrigo Garcia, great director, great great writer. And that show took place in a psychologist's office, and there were two people sitting in a room. Mm-hmm. And they were half-hour shows, 
And at some point, the directors always found a spot to cross the line or adjust the frame so that you didn't feel like you were just stuck in these Mm. same shots. And it could be movement. It could be someone getting up and getting a glass of water. It could be somebody crossing their legs in a different way. It can be anything that can kind of pull you, you know, seamlessly Mm -hmm. to another angle. And then Mm. the rest of the scene would play on Mm. that side of the line. So that, you know, again, these are rules that I think are important to follow and then break because... No one cares. We were talking earlier. By the way, everyone, we were talking earlier. Um, about Names were named. Yes, names were named. We were just talking about the, you know, the bottom line is you've got to tell a good story and you've got to mm-hmm. keep your, your viewers interested and, and involved and, and curious about where the story is going to go and what's going to happen to these characters. So if I have to cross the line to do that, and even if it's an inelegant cut, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. We were talking yeah. also about performance. You know, if something goes out of focus, but it's the best performance, you're just going to use it yeah. because you don't want to sacrifice, a, you know, throwing the audience out by a sudden not great performance uh-huh. because of a little focus buzz. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned in treatment. That first season was so good. And one of the things I liked about it is like they had such a monumental job because it really is a show with just two people in a room. And they had to use the, like small gestures and small hand movements, and I'll never forget. There's like that moment with the one character who's attracted to Gabrielle Byrne, and she puts, you know, their hands meet on the table. I think, but there was such like you really had to get creative with physical movement when you shot that because otherwise it would have been so. I could couldn't just imagine just two camera back and forth. How boring that would have been to watch. Yeah. After a while. That was. A, I love your smile on that one. You're like, <laughs> you're like yep. Yeah, me. When I got that Come job, visit my job. <laughs> I I took that job not only to work with Rodrigo because he's he's so great, but because I I had come off of something that was challenging. I don't even remember honestly. I love your code word, challenging. <laughs> I love code with you. It was challenging. It was challenging. And um, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to go work on a show where there's just two people in a room and it's a half hour. It's going to be a breeze. I'm going to have like six hour days. It's going to be great. And it was really one of the hardest shows to edit. Because imagine, you know, the, the weight on Gabriel because he was in every scene and it was 30 minutes of material they would shoot in three days each episode in three days and it was you know a lot to ask of an actor to to retain all that information and um how was continuity on that too if you're working so micro um it it was pretty good i mean those actors were were really great i I would say the challenge with that show i'm going to tell a out of school tale (laughs) i feel like it's long we've waited long enough had some time on that show (laughs) Um, we would shoot, uh, the patients first so that Gabriel could have a chance to learn his dialogue. And oftentimes during that process, the discussion would happen, you know, maybe there's a better way to say this. Maybe there's a better way to have this conversation. Well, we already had one side of the conversation filmed. So when we turn the camera around to Gabriel and if we'd made adjustments to the dialogue, it would be like, okay, <laughs> oh, no. how do we how do we figure this out? So it was, you know, and it happened often, you yeah. know. Um, it sounds like a really fun sound editing job. It, Particularly because, like, in human dialogue, we respond yeah. tonally to what someone has just said to us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a lot of hard work, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> and um, But when you have, like, Gabriel holds that frame so well. He's mm-hmm. so compelling just to look at. Mm-hmm. And especially in that show where his job was to listen to his patients and really process, and you were just watching him 
on his, you know, seeing yeah. all that happen on his face. Yeah. Um, you know, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have been successful. So all the work we did behind the scenes to make that not seem like a boring show, we couldn't have done it if we didn't have great performances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm wondering, it may, this might be a broad question, but like, what have you learned about actors and acting that you would, advice you would pass on from having seen you know, hundreds, thousands of performances again and again from an editing booth. Because I have heard some editors say like, oh, that actor is a bit difficult to cut, like, right? It doesn't mean they're a bad actor, but just like there's certain, like, because you probably see such detail. So I, I'm going to follow up with that question. So yeah. I'm interested on, on the, the, the technical side and the organic side. And I don't mean like Whole Foods organic. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. Clear. Um, <laughs> I would say what what actors shouldn't worry about is messing up, really, mm-hmm. because it's not a play. Mm-hmm. My dad said something funny the other day. I was telling him something about you know working working on material where everyone was trying to get things in one shot, and he said, he said, you know what you call a movie with no edits? <laughs> a play. <laughs> so I would say. Well said, Dad. <laughs> Um, I would say not to, here's an example. If you're delivering a long paragraph of dialogue as an actor and you get almost to the very end and you, you, uh, say a word wrong, right? If you can Mm -hmm. just stay focused and stay in because Mm -hmm. two things can happen. We can re-record that word, or I can find that word in another one of your performances. Mm. And if you're pretty close, if Mm -hmm. you, if you, if you're, the way you speak is pretty typical from take to take. I can fix that word. But if you stop and go, oh, damn, 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 I'm sorry, sorry, let me, let me go back, let me go back. Mm. Now you go back one sentence and you pick up one sentence and you finish and you finish strong. Well, I still can't use that entire take because you didn't go all the way back to the beginning. Yeah, because you screwed up. Because you screwed up. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what that will end right. up requiring is, is a film edit. Yeah. Whereas maybe there's a chance that I could fix that in the audio mm-hmm. and save, not save, but prevent an edit. So mm-hmm. I can, your, your performance is so great. I would love to be on you for this entire paragraph, but for that word. So now what I have to do is, and I w- that would be an advice, a piece of advice I would give actors. Again, I don't want to, there's so much going on for them to just deliver. But this is really important because here's the thing is that you, you use the word stay in, right? So using that to stay in, because if you break the scene, you become, you jump out of character and, you know, you break the, the moment. Then Now there's no hope for that. And what you're talking about is, in, in actor language, is integration. So in real life, people don't say words perfectly, mm-hmm. you know, so we can integrate that and make it even more powerful. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's great. I was just thinking before you said that, that we... There was a scene um, on Six Feet Under. I don't remember what season it was. And one of the characters, again, same thing. Great performance happening. Mm-hmm. Line is flubbed. Mm-hmm. So ultimately I used a different take where where the performance was probably just as good, maybe not quite as good, mm-hmm. but the lines were delivered correctly. And I, I don't know if it was Alan Ball or Alan Poole said, let's look at some takes there. I, there's something about this performance that I'm not completely buying. Let's look at some of the other takes. So I, I played the other takes and they're like oh yeah yeah let's use that use that one i said oh you know he he said this word wrong and that's exactly what they said they're like people 
make mistakes all the time when they speak, as long as it doesn't feel like, as long as it doesn't throw them off, if it right. feels natural. Integration, yeah. that, yeah. that's the key word. If, you, I, if I can integrate the moment, then it actually becomes more like real life because we don't, we don't talk in sentences. We talk in thoughts and ideas. And, you know, if someone has a hot moment and they, they mispronounce a word or they, you know, they say it with a stutter or whatever, that's, that's, that can actually make it even more compelling, yeah. not, not less. Yeah. And in real life, I don't tend to go back and go, wait, I'm sorry, let me, let me go. Back. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I, I don't tend to. Sometimes yeah. I do. But, yeah. Let me say that again yeah. in a different yeah. way. And you also uh, have uh, a producing background, too. So, it's, so you wear all the hats. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about yeah. that because you've talked yeah. about that that you learned a lot about editing from producing and because when you have to step back and be the person who has to make the decisions about what performances to use and what, which ways the scenes are supposed to be cut like what did you learn from that it, it was fringe right yeah when you were the producer yeah I, I started on fringe as an editor and uh, brian burke who uh, was jj abrams right hand man for many years was kind of in charge of of dealing with post on that show and being a very busy guy, he decided he needed somebody else to kind of do that job and offered it to me. And I was scared to death because mm-hmm. Brian has like a giant brain and a huge imagination and he can look at anything and s- figure out a way to change mm-hmm. it for the good or bad, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I was like, I can't do what you do. I don't, I, I don't have that sensibility and he's like just yes you do you can you can so he just sort of forced me into that position and what I learned is to because as an editor you're often you have too much information and you make a lot of choices sometimes because of that information you've chosen to take for this reason Mm -hmm. you're not using this for that reason Mm -hmm. you also don't have the power typically depending on your relationship with your producers or your director you don't have the power to remove things or change things or omit things because that's not your job. Your mm-hmm. job is to help bring this, you know, vision together for all of those involved. So being put in that position, I was given the authority to do whatever I wanted. We could always go back. We always had the director's cut. We always had the editor's cut. Yeah. Um, but the writers agreed, like, if you think it's stupid or you don't think it works or you think it's confusing, take it out and see what happens. And so having that freedom really allowed me to look at the material not as not with such such a technician's hat on Mm -hmm. um i mean i still feel like i'm creative as an editor but when you're when you're actually given authority to craft the work without worrying about making your boss mad Mm -hmm. um you can look at it a a complete the film a completely different way and ultimately what that did for me is it it made me a better editor because it it allowed me to realize Mm -hmm. how much more I could do if I was just given the authority and even if I I'm not given the authority I still do those things now and if it comes up you know this isn't quite working do you have any other ideas it's like here's my my idea my brain is exploding over here (laughs) that is amazing yeah, because there's also there's an aspect for everyone, yeah. and it's it's not always an external force giving them permission. So they don't give themselves permission. Right. I mean, you see this as writers all the time. Like, they get very hewed to what they think the story is and what it has to be. And there's maybe another part of them that says, "Well, this character is actually most interesting," or "I want to follow this scene a different path," but that's not what it says on my outline. And so they essentially don't give themselves permission to yeah. do that. Yeah. And 
they don't maybe get the best or it or is not as imaginative as it could be but there's a huge issue around permission yeah you know and you are in a position you've kind of had an interesting role because you've been in a position where you were the person who got to give yourself permission because you were the person who ultimately was responsible for that narrative right yeah yeah and you know it doesn't end with me you know i I had executive producers who would come in after me and and they would watch what we had done what the editor and i had done together and you know if it shifted from the script they would ask why and Mm -hmm. we could either show them the original version and they could and you know it's the the process continues so but it upped your game that's what i'm hearing which is really interesting that expansion that that freedom and then coming back even to a position that you held before, still because now you're different. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 I, there's a, a story I can tell, not using names. <laughs> no pronouns or no, allowed no, on no. this show. We'll put the pronouns uh, in, the yeah. show, in the show notes. All right, BMW. Where a show wasn't working as people thought <laughs> they wanted it to work. Code. And Code. That no one kind of no one really knew what was wrong. They just couldn't really put their finger on it. They just knew that it wasn't what they wanted. I love it. There were lots of elements that were working, but it just didn't quite deliver. Mm-hmm. And it someone came to me and said, "You need to, you need to redo this so that we it's what we want, not the director, not the producers, because they felt like though they were at that point compromised. And I'm not I don't I'm not putting anybody down. Everyone mm-hmm. you know did amazing work." Mm-hmm. But again, you come to the end of the process and you're like, it's not what we want. Like, how do we get what we want out of this? And who can we give freedom to, to explore this, who doesn't have any kind of preconceived notion? Right. It's, you can't, the director might not be the right person because they know why they shot something and they may not want to see beyond it. They may not be able to see beyond it. They may completely disagree with this question and this this, this request. So who can we who can we have take a stab at this who's who can't, won't be influenced by anything but the, the request mm. the, the work the work yeah. the work so i sat down and i thought oh my gosh i'm gonna be fired <laughs> <laughs> and i i did something that wasn't a hundred percent original it's you know there are certain things that we do to tell stories that work a lot and that's why they're that's why they're yeah that's yeah, why they're there that's yeah why they uh-huh. work yeah so I basically took the end of the show and I put it at the beginning of the show. And the idea was to, it didn't, by the way, it didn't, the show didn't end up like this, but at least it gave them the understanding that there are options that we can utilize to, yeah. to try and make the show you want. How, how did they react when you showed them your cut? Um, there was a, a few people who were thrilled and loved it. And there were a few people who <laughs> didn't like it. Didn't like it. Yeah. Personal taste. Personal taste. <laughs> Yeah. But the idea was, initially when you're watching, you just kind of didn't know what you're watching, and you didn't know who you were following, and you were kind of you mm-hmm. were you were confused, not in a good way, mm-hmm. about what this was. And and by taking the end of the show and putting it at the beginning of the show, what you were doing was you were kind of telling the audience a little bit like, this is a basically about what you're going to see, and it was still mysterious because you weren't sure who this person was in this tale. You knew they were going to play an important part. But it almost made them, it almost gave them an ominous presence. So when you're watching the person do good, mm-hmm. you're kind of like, but is he good? Because mm-hmm. at the beginning of the show, he was kind of maybe not good. Mm-hmm. So it, it was it was an interesting way to, 
to start the the project. Like I said, it didn't end up that way. It just, again, it was a consideration. It was a suggestion Mm -hmm. that let everybody know that, you know, we have options here. And, you you know, you you need, again, you need to be given the freedom and not have the pressure of the, the, uh, the people who disagree uh-huh. You know, telling you you can't do it. Well, you also opened up. You opened up like I'm, I'm being this, these big gestures here, but you opened up like uh, a new vision of what could be, even if it's not the one. It it uh, starts the ball rolling to create other other things. Yeah. One of the most important things I'm hearing you say also is this thing of like it needs to be um, unique in in the sense of like pulls you in and uh, like you're interested and you want to know more but not so much that it starts to alienate and that's a very tricky balance to find for uh for storytellers actors writers Mm. editors yeah and it it always uh, intrigues me uh how we get to that balance i always say breaking bad in their in their first um you know did did an exceptional job of like what the hell is Mm -hmm. going on and yet and yet it's so weird and yet i'm pulled in yeah yeah, that pilot is often so looked at in that regard because it really, you know, it's the it's the end, the final scene is the first three minutes yeah. of that pilot. Right. But the, they the made RV, it in, the RV going yeah. through the desert. It's like and the guys in his underwear. It's like what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not easy to pull that off narratively to yeah. tell us to make us so. That has to come out of such a deep character transformation in the first pilot in the first episode because we have to become so fascinated in how. This character got from A to B, and B is very far away. Right. Yeah. And that, and it's a great setup when it works, but sometimes, either the distance isn't that they traversed isn't far enough, or um, we don't completely understand their motivations for going there. Or it's just alienating. It's just you know, sure, it's random, but it's like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then there's disengagement, mm. yeah. and that's bad. That is bad. <laughs> dropouts. Josh, <laughs> Josh, Josh uses the word dropout constantly. Yeah, yeah dropout. Because and maybe, when the audience is no longer yeah. engaged yeah. With, yeah. The, with the story. So he and and you tell me because like in the work I do, um, I feel like there's about you can have three dropouts. In, in like within 15 minutes and most of the time they'll stay with you but if you exceed three dropouts they check out the audience what, what's what's your experience I, I, I know the question. ideal is no dropouts yeah, but yeah. I, I would say the hardest thing that we face is that first eight minutes yeah and I think people will I know myself as an audience once I'm in, right. you can do anything you want. Right. And I'm probably going to stay in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, even if I disengage for a little bit, I'm, I've, I've invested this first like 10 minutes and you've, you've intrigued me and, and mm-hmm. I kind of want to know where this is going to go. Mm-hmm. And I think this, the thing about streaming that has been so beneficial for some of these stories is that if you give someone access, immediate access to that next episode, if they were a little bit, nah, I don't know, mm. let me watch one more. And then by second one, okay, okay. If you make somebody wait, if you've got a kind of questionable first episode and you make somebody wait a whole week to remember that's on Mm -hmm. and to tune in, they may not. And and we've done that in the past where Mm -hmm. we we thought, you know, episodes two, episode two is a little bit stronger than episode one, but we, episode one has to kind of be what it is because it's setting everything up. Mm -hmm. They oftentimes air two in a row when they premiere. They used to do this on network TV all the time. They they would do a two hour Mm -hmm. premiere because they knew that if the audience could just see where this goes in episode two, we're going to have them. 
if we rely only on episode one, we may not get the same return audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's I have watched shows that ultimately I'm so happy I did because I was able to watch two, three in a row and mm-hmm. really kind of fully engage. Yeah, it's such an interesting question because it raises yeah. this question of pacing. Mm-hmm. Like I was thinking about The Wire as you were talking. Mm. The first time I watched The Wire, I didn't get it. And fortunately, I, I've heard, actually, I saw David Simon speak at um, the Getty last year. And one of the things he said is like, everyone tells me about how famous the wire, how great the wire did. The wire did great after it went off the air. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I thought to myself, that's exactly right. I watched it after it was off the air Mm -hmm. and I had the DVDs. And I think if I hadn't had the DVDs and I hadn't been able to just be like, I'm totally intrigued by something here, but this pacing is incredibly different than what I'm used to seeing in a quote unquote cop show, even though I know this is different. Eventually, over time, I just like by the third episode, I was like, oh, these characters have me. And when you talk about streaming and you use the term eight eight minutes, it's tough now. There's so much content. And then I imagine like even from where you sit, there's a lot of pressure for that first eight minutes of the pilot to be really riveting and grab people by the throat because if not your pilot... 700 other pilots <laughs> will be watched. So yeah. he, here's what I'm hearing you guys talking about, which is like that thing of like the first one has to be engaging to some degree, but it doesn't have to be out of the park, but the second one has to be right behind it. So that, so for all listeners too, so if your first date doesn't go very well, right. what the idea is to do is to have a second date like the next day, even <laughs> if you think it's like a bomb because it's the, it's through repetition that you're... No, no. It's, you know, I was just going down a different road. Well, no, no, no. I, I, as but, you were talking, I was wondering. I was yeah. like, yeah, I would love to get... I, I was like, I would love to have data on people who said about their relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until like the you know seventh date that I knew right. versus the people who were like, oh, no, the first date it was on. Like, yeah. And see... It's the same thing. It's yeah, a narrative. How right? do you get to that seventh date if like two and three you're like, oh, it's still really boring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Prox- but what you're telling me is proximity, Seven is man. Strong, just keep showing up, yeah. man. Just, so the date was like not so good. It's like, okay, I know tonight wasn't so good. Let's go out again tomorrow. Right. But I didn't like that. Shh. Yeah. You, you'll see. The second date yeah. is so good. I have it already spontaneously planned. I think seven's a lot, but I've certainly heard yep. that about like the third date. I've heard women yeah. say that about yeah. their partner where they're like, yeah, he was a little bit just, he was just really quiet and shy on the first date. And yeah. like, I didn't, it's a little boring. See, and then, and like, everybody wants to give notes. You know, it's <laughs> like, you know, I, I constantly get reviewed. It's just like, I went to a bank the other day and I opened the door. I was like, I really appreciate you opened the, the door like that. And I'm like, can't, can't you just accept that I opened the door? Why do you have to review oh, me? Oh, you got no. You got me too for opening the door. <laughs> was it for a woman? <laughs> Josh, did you open the door? <laughs> it was a kind gesture. Yes. Yeah, no. Yeah. Gotta be careful. Those are good. I think everybody has to give notes. Yeah. There's a funny quote about notes that I, I wish I could remember it verbatim. I think it was Taylor Sheridan who who had a quote about notes where he got a note from the studio that was I, I'm not going to remember it. I'm going to have to show it to you guys later. But it's literally like someone saying, you know, Taylor, you've got to do the note, you know, beneath the note <laughs> and he said but what's the note right. and they said well we don't know right. that is so good. <laughs> well no because you are so going good. to like a, a place where i was curious about which is this question of translation mm-hmm. which is like do sometimes people come into the room with you and they're like um 
it's a little boring and it feels like a little bit like um, this and we want you to can you make it feel like this okay so uh, let me let me let me jump in on this so uh, one of our core things in this show is this which is result note over process note and I feel like that's where you're going with that so lay it down for us how do you doing what you do so masterfully translate a note that is <clears throat> challenging misgiven <laughs> in many ways um, to make it so it's workable doable for you I think it's circumstantial for sure uh, a lot of times it's hard and that's one thing I, I also learned uh, being a producer was having to actually speak words that weren't offensive to my editor and were result-oriented because in my brain I know how to do it and if I'd sat in the chair and pushed that person aside I could achieve it very quickly <laughs> but as a collaborator I need mm -hmm. to figure out how do I say this so that it makes sense and is actionable mm -hmm. um, and, and we do we get notes like that I think composers get that a lot more than editors do because oh. people many people don't speak music language I'm, yeah. I'm not a trained person I've gotten better over the years but a lot of times producers will say to their composers, you know, we, we need to feel his internal struggle here. And I'm like, okay, is that an oboe? Yeah, is that a cello? Exactly. Like, no, I've heard that too. So it's tough. But when, when someone comes in and just doesn't know, if someone just says to me, it's not working, mm -hmm. I, I can change lots of things to make it be different. Right. And if they're not specific enough, if they tell me it's boring, then you know maybe it's the dialogue maybe the scene's too long yeah. uh, maybe it needs to be edited more frenetically because you're getting bored sitting in these shots there can be many things that are causing that reaction in you and if you can't be specific with me about what needs to be changed i'm just going to try something so how do you so how do you work with that do you say well when exactly did you drop out do, do you like do you like you know elicit more so that yeah, try, definitely try and, and find that point. Uh, you know, if it's mm -hmm. off the top, you're confused, or in the middle, you're bored, or where, mm -hmm. you know, if it ultimately you were riveted and then we got to the end and you were completely let down, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. definitely try and hone in on something specific. Mm -hmm. But um, listen, I, I, I have this experience all the time where people just come in and they had a different expectation of a scene and mm -hmm. they don't know what I have to work with. They just know it's not satisfying to them what can we do that's different how do we make this more exciting mm -hmm. and they and and you just have to go to your bag of tricks you just you do jump cuts in the middle of action so they seem more uh you know when someone gets punched in the face a lot of times we'll take a couple frames out so the head snaps faster mm -hmm. because you know people are not getting really getting hit in the face and the way they move their head may feel unnatural and you might be able to see that brief moment of separation between fist and face but if you take a couple frames out, the fist gets close and the head snaps and you put a good punch noise in there and suddenly it seems like a super violent hit. <laughs> so there's, we definitely have our little bag of tricks to, to heighten things and, and change things a little bit. Do you ever tell people that maybe you should drop expectations? And that you should just... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have had to say basically this is it. This is yeah. what we have. And yeah. you can certainly bring somebody else in with a different perspective to try something different. But this is the footage we have. And without new footage, but, but, you know, there's not – I literally got this note. Scene was a oneer, one shot. Mm -hmm. What can we do – to make the scene move more quickly. Mm. I, 
I can't do anything. I have one shot. I can't even like, I mean, I could get like super creative and like split the screen and blow up the right side. And, you know, I can wickedly manipulate things, but that's not the language of this film. This film is an elegant film. And and if I only have one shot, there's just nothing I can do. And I actually, what I did was, and I don't even remember how it ended up, I had uh, a shot of an actor that was in the same scene from a different scene but it was on the same set, different room in the set, but same house. And I flopped the shot, and I drew a line around the outline of his body, and I took a freeze frame from the scene I was working in mm-hmm. so that the background matched the background we were in, and I matted that, back, that freeze frame behind him, and I created a profile from a shot that didn't exist mm-hmm. so that I could... Now, to be fair, I had... I had one shot for the entire scene but I did have a second camera so even though it was still one shot it was a different angle I just couldn't cut to that angle for a lot of different reasons so I used this completely manufactured profile shot to bridge between the great opening shot Mm. and this other shot to finish the scene and so that's you know again that's the imagination you have to kind of have you have to go into your film and just say how, how how long how long did that take how many hours did you have to invest to create that it, honestly once the idea hit me yeah it not that long because you can you know it, it took some time to find the right the right you know you're looking for that before slate after slate moment of the set where the camera's in actually either in focus or out of focus or whatever it is you're looking for um, I always try and make have movement so sometimes I'll look for a frame that that is before action so that there's a little bit of float because sometimes you can we can do that now in post too of course we can take a freeze frame and add a little camera float and in the old days we'd add film grain so it looked like something was moving but once you find your bits to composite Mm -hmm. it's it's fairly quick and then we ultimately hand it off to somebody who's a professional visual effects person who can create that more uh seamlessly Mm. but you know, when push comes to shove, you've got to try and find a solution. And it's scary because a, a, a lot of times people just don't believe you at the end of the day where they're like, well, you made that shot. Don't tell me you can't do it. You I've it seen you time. do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you just made more work for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What was I thinking? Does and it, that, it's fun. I mean, it can yeah. be it can be really a, like a super high when you yeah. when you discover something you didn't realize was there yeah. and you made it work and, and no one noticed. And, it, mm. you know, it's, it's definitely... A, a, a moment of, mm. to celebrate creativity. Do you ever do you ever watch those scenes and be like, God, I wish I could I could have shot this. Like I, if I could get this back, because I know because it's like you have the perspective of knowing later what you wanted it to actually look like. Yeah, we we are guilty of that. We we are because we are the end of the road. So we can see why something didn't work and and very easily say, Oh, you know what I would have done. I'm not a director, and I I don't really ever aspire to be a director. But you you know you do visualize, and that's another thing I would I would offer to everyone in the process. Not not necessarily a director because they're obviously very visual, but even writers and and actors, if they can picture themselves in that scene and the rhythm and the pace of that scene, it can inform how you perform, mm-hmm. because um, it's likely if you have a really long speech. there's going to be a cutaway to somebody listening Mm. and you can kind of probably figure that you know they're probably going to be on me for this part of the scene they might be off me for this 
and they're going to probably finish the sequence with me. You know, the point of view might change. It might be all about the person listening. So we may spend a lot more time watching that person process what they're hearing. Mm -hmm. But the same, I think, is true with um, with writers. Um, uh, very recently had an experience where half of the page was an explanation. Mm -hmm. And dialogue didn't start until, you know, bottom half of the page. And when you think about it, if you put yourself there visually, you're coming in in the middle of a scene. Mm-hmm. basically but the dialogue doesn't start until all of this other stuff has been established mm-hmm. so as an editor I see that right away and I go well, what's what's happening during all of this what's happening during this 20 seconds of establishing where we are mm-hmm. and we're coming in in the middle of a scene which means we've missed part of the scene right mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. so you should probably reconsider or at least know in the future, you're going to have to write half a page of dialogue for somebody so that when we come into the scene, it, when we finally come into the coverage of the scene, yeah. we're, we're in the coverage of the scene. So I think it's really important to be as visual as possible for, for each of the roles that you're playing because I, don't, I, I think when you look at that script page, there's no way you can look at that script page and think, okay, well, what's happening during this 30 seconds? I don't... Yeah. You know, we need to mm. we need to help that because if nothing's being said and we're coming in in the middle of a conversation, it doesn't make sense. Right, right. I think it makes sense when you read it because you're because you're in in your imagination. You're like, oh, this is cool. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Oh, I like that. Okay. Oh, now he's talking. Yeah. So you feel again as you a, as a reader, gaps, you feel yeah. in the yeah. yeah. Mm. You know, it's interesting. You bring up this thing about listening. In, in essence, you're bringing about listening, um, and how interesting that is in terms of of like what I've noticed about American films. American films tend to have a hyper attention on the person who's talking, and European films depend more spend more visual time on the people listening. And tell me about your experience around that. Like how much? Because part of it's appetite. You know what I feel like we're in the middle of. I feel like we're in the middle of like a 1920s salon in Europe with you. <laughs> I feel like I'm like, you know, in some little cafe in, in Paris and we're all talking about the the art. And <laughs> doesn't it feel like that? Like we're yeah, like, like a, a warm salon. cafe. Yeah, a little warm <laughs> cafe, you know. Uh, between World War One and World War II. <laughs> before, air, before air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, before air conditioning. <laughs> but doesn't it feel like, like we're like we're like talking about the nuances and how art, if, uh, how art and culture and everything else influences how you, how you tell your story, how you edit. Mm-hmm. Like, so t- tell me about like how what appetite do we have for listening uh, here in the states as opposed to overseas and yeah. other markets. I, I think we tend to really, uh, you know, uh, since I work predominantly in television. You have to take into consideration the size of someone's television, uh, for one thing, because some people have still have 13-inch TVs. So if you're not on someone's face, big in frame, talking, some people might drop out. So the balance really is how much are you actually retaining what you're listening to? Because if you get to a point in a scene where you're off someone talking uh-huh. and you're, you stopped actually listening to what they're saying, uh-huh. then you should be back on that person talking. Because we tend to retain information more when we see it and hear it. Really? Yeah. Now, I am totally into the European sensibility because mm-hmm. I, fi- I 
describe myself as an observer. I love watching things and behavior and reaction. Yeah. And I think as an editor and in the storytelling process, like we just have to decide whose story it is we're telling in every single moment. And no scene is without someone's point of view. No scene is, should be without pushing something forward, whether it's the change of a character or more story information, whatever it is. We, we call them discoveries. There has to be a yeah, discovery. Yeah, there has to be a discovery. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you, you it's it's going to be taster's choice. It, if you, and that's why it's important too for actors to always be in when they're mm. not speaking because you never know when we're going to need to watch you listening. And if you're not the type of actor who is present when they're not speaking, you know, I've, I've worked with actors before where we always cut away to this other person because this other person is always so emotive facially. Yeah. Like you can always tell they're reacting to what they're hearing. Yeah. Even if it's not the same moment. I mean, it could be a reaction from later in the scene, but they're always doing something with their face. Whereas this actor kind of always looks bored if they're not talking. So it's, it's often hard to cut to that person listening because they're not really listening. Right. When they're in the scene and l- I'm, I'm going to call this out listening with a point of view how the character thinks and feels in that moment absolutely yeah it's it's critical yeah. i mean you can get so much more screen time you know be selfish it's all about screen oh, time exactly baby. you know yeah, yeah. it's you kind know, of an odd irony <laughs> because basically what you're describing is happening is the actor who is disinterested let's just we're not going to be critical but let's just say they are the egotistic one because <laughs> they're, they're not on the screen end up with less screen time yeah because they didn't want to actually be or, you know, we're not trained to be present at all times. And I also, I imagine it gets hard when you're doing like 15 takes and the camera's not on you, but that's yeah. maybe but, not, but Josh but would that's say that. pro, in, baby. That, that's not an excuse. That's not an excuse you want to show yourself on. But yeah, you got to be pro. You got to show up. Yeah. I mean, that, you have to give. Yeah. You know, it's about, this is an art about giving. But I'm always impressed with uh, actors who actually stay through the entire process to to allow the other actor to react to and who actually perform with them even though they're off screen because yes. that can only help the person who's on camera mm. everyone the yeah. whole the whole project yeah absolutely yeah well i'm excited about something uh-oh we've hit that moment that moment in our show where so oh. last night i went out and i went looking for a cacao bar just for you tanya thank you that we're going to share and um, I came up with, so I, I tapped into, you know, who you are, the essence of your being. And then I put my left hand, you know, because feminine energy, right? Of course. You know. <laughs> and I have to, you know, because I'm under a new moon influence, so that's important too. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I went through it. And then energetically, um, it said here, I like its bright fruitiness. And that's by a, a chef out of London. Okay. So that was a bonus burger. But I actually felt like this is Peruvian. It's 75% cacao. It has bright, dark chocolate tones, but also smoky and mm. a little bit of coffee flavor. Who, who makes this, uh, this um, chocolate? This is uh, called Original Beans. Okay. And so that's what we're going to... So we're, we all get to enjoy this see. with you. Yeah. I have friends who are editors at um, like literary magazines, and they get manuscripts and submissions all the time. And I feel like the only thing we're going to start getting is chocolate bar companies <laughs> sending us. <laughs> we're like, because we started doing this with guests, where we they always get chocolate at some point in the in the episode. Yes. Yeah, sponsored so, by. So you're, here's the here's the sound. We're actually like opening. <laughs> in case you thought we were in a professional <laughs> studio. <laughs> oh, that's funny. The other thing I want to chat about Uh is this thing of, of, and I'm personally challenged by this, which is 
the organizational aspects of the creative process and the creative aspects of the creative process and merging those two mm -hmm. and you know I because of certain things that I do with NLP I know you're you know that you're um, that you're uh, you know uh, you're left brain dominant so you know which is great for your purposes but how do you how do you balance both they, they it's I think it's really important because it, being creative is exhausting quite frankly <laughs> Um, you know how it is if you're you, you know your brain just doesn't stop you you're, you're yeah. always trying to either figure something out or yeah, yeah and um, so the organizational side of it um, I enjoy because it gives me a break it keeps me productive and it keeps informing me about the material that I have but it's not I'm not thinking so for instance I do there, there's a program you can use now with the, with the Avid software I don't know what it's called anymore. It used to be called Scripter or ScriptSync, where you can actually go through it. You can import a script into your Avid, and you can basically assign the footage to the script so that if you want to check every performance for a certain piece of dialogue, you can just click on this little clip, and it will play them for you. And for me, the challenge is, is that when, you're, when you have these crazy deadlines and you don't have enough time to get through your six hours of film, you may rely on that. And there's so much stuff that happens in between and you have to get back to that at some point. You may not have time. But the facial expression, the whatever it is that, that isn't happening in those little bits, mm -hmm. you need to familiarize yourself with. So what I do, even though we have that technology, and I'm sure many editors still do this, is I do what I call a poll sequence. So I will go through every take, um, every camera, and for every performance, I will pull those, those takes. So... Let's say there's four takes of one actor performing the scene, and they have five lines of dialogue. So I will edit together the first line of dialogue every single take I have, the second line of dialogue every single take I have. So ultimately, if I want to go back and check that performance, I, I can just play that sequence, and I'll have those four mm -hmm. performances in a row for every single line of dialogue. And what I'll also do, is, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll cut it as if I'm cutting the scene, but I'm not thinking about the architecture of the scene or the subtext of the scene. I'm simply doing performances. So I'll cut all of your shots together. Then the next line of dialogue is yours. So I'll cut to you and I'll do all yours. So I'm basically cutting back and forth between mm -hmm. the performances. And I'm also pulling re reaction shots. So yeah. I'm watching your take while you're listening to this guy say this. Oh, you had a really great look on your face there. So I'll pull that as a reaction shot. Mm -hmm. And so then I end up with this long sequence of every single performance that, that I've been given mm -hmm. and every single reaction. Mm -hmm. And that way, because I did something really naughty when I was an assistant editor and first learning, my editor, Casey Roars, the great Casey Roars, taught me that you need to watch every frame of your film mm -hmm. because I cut a scene for him, for <sighs> us. And we had the director in the room, and he was like, oh, that's really kind of inventive, the way you just you know, played that moment all in sound effects. It's kind of interesting. Tell me, why didn't you use the shot where the guy actually jumped off the back of the boat? And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't see that. You shot that? I mean, I didn't, that was my internal voice. And <laughs> then it you? was followed by I'm fired. Um, and Casey looked at me after the director left, and he's, he's like, what happened? And I said, oh, my God, I... I 
I, I got to the end of this dialogue of the scene and I didn't check like the last, because what happened is typically if there's a big action piece, they won't do it in every single take. They'll wait to the last take because if the guy's jumping into water, he's wet and they yeah. can't dry him off in time to yeah. reset. Right. So they only do it once and they do it in the last take, the very yeah. last thing in the last take. Well, I didn't look at it. So I've never done that again. And I, so I comb through every frame just to make sure that I'm, I'm getting you know all the best stuff. And what that does is not only does it make me watch everything and it starts to help me form my pattern and helps me get in a little bit more deeply into the material, but I'm not really being creative. I'm being, I'm being structural. I'm just yeah. pulling bits and looking at stuff and getting to know it. But okay, at the same time, I, I understand you're working on a technical level, you're working on structure. I totally get that. At the same time, you're like building this huge library of all these um, uh, uh, moments of different, of different takes of the same scene and you have to like... Oh yeah, I want to go. This. How do like that's so much data. Yeah, it's depending. I mean, I, I'm currently working on a project where I'm editing three episodes at the same time, so I'm I'm not. My callback isn't as excellent as it typically is when I'm just working on one episode. But you know, you just it's it's just retention. You watch it enough times, you work on the material enough times, you know when the director says, what take did you use? And you say, oh, I used take three because in that take you were focused on this guy and you kind of edged this guy out and I felt like it was more about him and not about him. And, you know, so you just remember because you've, you've spent so much time yeah. pulling it, looking at it, considering it, trying it. And, wow. you know, it's, it, we have this horrible term we use now called an assembly. It's called a first assembly. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know any editor that actually just assembles anything because that means you haven't put any thought into it. Right. Um, our first assemblies are actually, there's actually quite a lot of work that goes into that. Now, it's not certainly fully evolved. It's yeah. probably nowhere near being fully evolved. And in fact, you can't really know what you have until you have everything because each thing informs the other. So even though the, I thought I cut the scene out the gate really, really well, really impactful, I have all these wonderful moments and beats built in, well, I did that in scene two also, and I did that in scene three, and now mm -hmm. I've got 50 scenes in a row that are fat with moments and beats, but not every scene deserves that and can sustain that. Right, right. So now I have everything, and I can go back into scene one and go, okay, all I need in this scene is that one mm -hmm. moment between them. The rest of it is is really expositional, mm -hmm. so I don't need to spend all that time. So mm -hmm. it, it the big picture informs the, 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 the macro, yes. definitely. Yes. Um, but, you, you know, you just have to try and remember why you've made choices and what sent you off in that direction. So tell me about your typical layers, <clears throat> you know, because you're going to layer and edit, right? Yeah. Um, so if you could just overview me on, you know, first pass, second pass, yeah. third pass. Basically, when I approach a scene, I watch all the film initially just so I can see what the progression was on set. You know, sometimes you'll, you'll have a director who completely changes everything by the time they've hit their fifth... Uh, their fifth version of a, of, a, of a master shot so you know the first like four masters are probably unusable because by the time he got to he or she got to the fifth version blocking has slightly changed or dialogue has been removed or whatever it is so the first thing I do is I really just try and sit back watch and see what everybody planned to do then I then it comes to my structure or I'll do my pulls you know just to get pull all the performances but the first thing I'll do is just basic construction I just put up the posts and put the drywall up and I just kind of get that mm. sort of frame up there. Mm -hmm. And then the next time I go through, 
I'll probably focus even more on performance. The first, the first two things are performance and structure. Then I get a little bit more into the performance of it. And then I kind of try and find the subtext mm. and the point of view of a scene. Mm. Sometimes scenes are, are only expositional. And when you watch them, you feel that. You just feel like, I'm just being given information. What does this mean to these characters? Mm-hmm. And if, I, if it's not obvious in performance or something like mm. that, I will then go back through and I'll try and create a moment that's just different, that wasn't expected, so that it, it makes the scene have more meaning than just information. And, and we talked about, you know, the pivot and the power in a scene. You know, sometimes it's really important to understand whose scene this is and whose point of view this scene should be coming from. And is it always that person's point of view? Is this whole scene about the way this person sees and reacts to what's going on? Mm-hmm. Or is there a pivot point in this scene where the power shifts to another person? Or even if it's not power, if it's just point of view if it's just mm-hmm. I we started this scene all about this person yelling at this person about mm-hmm. what they did wrong and it's really about seeing this this person's anger and 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 them being able to vent and get that out and the other it's really not about how the other person's feeling about this person venting until that person says that one word uh-huh. and suddenly it's really more about the person that's being attacked because that one word affects that person in a way that all the other blah 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 doesn't didn't Mm -hmm. so now I'm on that person and I'm seeing that person emote and react and and now possibly you know throw it back on the other person well you should Mm -hmm. you know so it's each each time we go at a scene it's just to, to make sure that we're we talked about rules at one point like rules go out the window when you get to these layers because you really just need to make sure that what you're left with in that scene is everything you should be getting out of that scene and don't don't rest on well it works you know mm-hmm. he says this and she says that and mm-hmm. they shake hands okay it works yeah functional yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah you know you bring up this thing about power and switches and whatnot uh, silence of the lambs that's one of the reasons why silence of the lamb is so compelling because here's a guy behind bars who does a power switch with someone who's on the outside mm-hmm. who's an fbi agent yeah. And we want that as, as as creatives is to kind of flip the the power back and forth. That's what makes it dynamic. Yeah. You know? Is it is it more interesting to cut those two? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's because you know you're still at your core an audience too. You know you want to you want to react and enjoy. At least I do. I, you know I don't want to be bored editing my own material. And if I am, then I I feel like I need to do something. Not just for myself, but you know, I don't want to for your own entertainment. Yeah, I can't. I can't. It just can't be. Yeah, and I do that all the time. I don't. You know, a lot of times, what I'll do is, if I have time, is I will take my cut home, and I will put it on the TV away from buttons and keyboards and Mm. and mice, just so that I can, because simply sitting away from the gadgets puts you in a different mindset as you watch something. And a lot of times, I'll know exactly why I did something, and I know why I, you know did the pivot there why I started in that person's point of view and made it this person's point of view at the end or whatever I did I know why I did it because I I I pushed those buttons but when I'm sitting on my couch in my living room with the tv all the way across the the room I'm not paying attention to those things at all all I'm paying attention to is the story and I'll watch and I'll be like oh my god why did I do that (laughs) it's like the stupidest choice ever or wow that really bumps me you know and it's not until I'm I put myself in that headspace that I can truly see what the what the scene is doing you know when i'm when i'm being such a tactician in that room 
a lot of the times I'm like, I can't, I, it has to be this way because of this. Mm-hmm. And when I sit, step back and I be the audience, I realize it doesn't matter. You have to find a way to do it because even if it, even if it's clunky, this moment isn't working in the scene. You've got to make it, you've just got to make that land no yeah. matter what. Yeah. It seems interesting because you don't have the benefit of time. You know, you're under such deadline pressure to deliver a show by a certain time that if you can put that down and take even a few days and look at it again with fresh eyes, and I imagine that is happening <clears throat> on some level because producers are coming in and directors and coming in and looking at it. But like, it's almost like people have to figure out like hacks around that. And one of those things that people do is taking it to a totally new environment and watching it on a different screen. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, when you've just been in your, your edit bay for like 10, 12 hours, it's hard to have perspective. And Definitely. the same thing happens in writing and drafts. And it's like people get too close on a script for too long and then they show it to someone else and they're like well have you thought about this motivation for this character here and they're like oh but the, you know they can't see that yeah, yeah, when yeah. you're so close mm-hmm. you know yeah. but it, and it's tough when you're on you know deadline to deliver the episode yeah. by Friday yeah the more time you have obviously for everybody um, I mean it can be it can hurt you too because you can mm-hmm. overanalyze right. and um, and certainly the more uh, people you get involved we talked about this at one point you know crafting something by committee is not ideal Mm. because everyone's going to have their own way of seeing something and each person's point of view has value ultimately there should be one person you know deciding whether they you know if you talk about like who's on camera and who's on camera like if you have a really strong director if you have like a Quentin Tarantino or you have like a Steven Soderbergh what, what you get from them is what they want you to see you don't, you don't, they don't come back and go, hey, can you give me a note on how I handled that scene? They don't, they want you to see it this way. It's their vision. If you don't get it, mm-hmm. if you're confused, let me explain it, you know, find someone to explain it to you and then watch it again and see if, what it means to you. Whereas in, in my area of work, we have so many people weighing in all the time mm-hmm. that you just it can get kind of muddied and you don't you don't have that objectivity you don't have that space and that time do do you think that that that's interesting to hear you say that because i'm i didn't i didn't really think about well let me put it this way do you feel like in television sometimes that is sometimes the risk because there are so many players and even as much as maybe the show is the show runners like at some point like there can be a lot of different voices and a lot of different comments and it can be difficult to maintain that singular vision. Absolutely, and it de- it depends on who that showrunner is. If you have um, people new to the job, uh, they may have, you know, they created the show. They had very clear vision of what the show was going to be, but they don't have the cachet to say no to the studio or no to the network. They 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 have to they have to try and make those people happy because they're the ones that that are ultimately paying the bills. Whereas if you have like a Matthew Wiener, it's like, is it Wiener or Weiner? <laughs> anyway, Madman, the guy who did Madman. If you, yeah. you know, he is a very strong personality. He had yeah. a very, I know some people that worked on that show, and he, he wasn't, you know, he was a tough guy to work with, but he was, he knew what he wanted. He, he you know, clearly he, he's extraordinarily talented, mm-hmm. and he wouldn't put up with, you know, you'd get network notes, and no, I'll do that one where other show owners feel like Whoa. I have to do every note that they give me because they're giving me these notes. Mm-hmm. And if you don't push back, they will walk all over you and they will always, always, all due respect to studio executives <laughs> and network executives, but you know, part of them wants to be creative too and part of them wants to weigh yeah. in. And um, 
I think there's a line that has to be drawn as to what their support should be. And, you know, they, I don't think they should be telling you what your dialogue should be. I don't think they should be telling you the type of sound effect a door knock should be. Mm-hmm. I think they should tell you how they feel as an audience member. Yeah. You know, yeah. they should be your audience. They should be your, they should be collaborating with you on that level. And I think, unfortunately, when you've got so many young people in this business now and so much content out there and people just clamoring, um, they're, they're, there's, there's not enough experience to push back and to be that strong visionary and that singular visionary because mm-hmm. you're just so happy they bought your show mm-hmm. and you just want to get it on the air and you want to make them happy and have them all, you know get you know, season two season two we'll handle season two we'll yeah. handle season two but then by then you've created monsters and you're you're exact they, they they feel like they have that they're co-producing your show wow yeah single vision that's that's what I'm really hearing you say is is someone in in the creative world of that project needs to have a single vision to take it all the way through. I think so, yeah. And at least if, if it wins, it wins, and if it dies, it dies, but at least you've had that as opposed to death by a thousand notes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, too, it, what's important is you, you um, it ha- if it's filtered through that person, for instance, mm-hmm. you may, your note from the network may be nothing anyone wants to do, but there's, Someone's having that reaction. Mm-hmm. So that singular visionary can say, that auteur can say, okay, I hear what your problem is. I'm going to fix it so that it keeps within the language of my film. It stays within the character of my film. Translation. Yeah. It's a translation exactly. job. Yeah. 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 It's a, a little bit about understanding that someone's having an experience and their solution to that experience is not necessarily the right solution, right. but that you need to listen to their experience. I always think about the radio show This American Life because I think one of the things that I know that their like editorial team does, which I think is really fascinating, is when they listen to a cut of a show, instead of giving like, I think this is what I've read, instead of giving substantive notes, they just are like, when am I engaged? When am I not engaged? At that level, that's the note. It's like, when are you, when are you interested and when are you not interested? And when sometimes when people even like will give me a script to read or I have like a, some friends who are documentary filmmakers and they'll ask me to look at a cut that's the first thing I try to do I first try to pay it before I start giving them prescriptions or suggestions I do my best to pay attention to like when was I interested and when was I bored yeah because how to fix that is something I may be able to help them with but at the end of the day they are also going to have to figure out that solution as well yeah you know and it's super valuable because that's that's um if you give your script to your script or a final editor or whatever to ten people, and all ten people say, "I dropped out at minute one thirty three and every single person plus or minus a few seconds says the same thing, guess what yeah, and then what you're saying Adam is brilliant, yeah, it's like now that's that's an objective data now creatively, how am I going to yeah finesse? it's an opening it's like now yeah. let's have a conversation about what you were trying to do how? here and yeah. how you might address it. And that's its own exploration. What did the character want in this moment? What did you think that you were showing that the character wanted? You know, like, when is it, is that congruent? Like, you know, then that conversation happens. But like to what you're saying, Tanya, it's like when, if an executive comes down and says, I think we should do X here. Right. Right. Like that's like, that can become a problem. problem. It's just, I think it's, um, it's just dangerous and they can be really smart and they can give really great ideas. I'm Mm -hmm. not, I'm not saying that they never do, Mm -hmm. but I really think the better partner they can be is expressing those moments and letting, letting the people 
you know, charged with creating this thing, find a way to solve that for you. Mm -hmm. And if they can't, then, you know, maybe ideas are, are good to have. But I just feel like everyone has an opinion. So you can fix it this way. You can fix it that way. It's, it's, it's just not helpful. See, this is what I keep going back to because you're right. Everyone's going to have an opinion, and that's going to be on day one, and that's going to be on day 999 of anyone's career. Mm -hmm. And we as artists have to be able to translate opinion notes or decipher opinion notes as a result, note most likely, and, and, and translate it into process that's viable for the project. Yeah. 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 It's always interesting in this respect when um, like movies or TV shows age well. Mm-hmm. when they were critically hated when they came out yeah. and then like mm-hmm. suddenly people find out that 10 15 years on there was actually this following and <laughs> it's you know a lot of people have downloaded it and i always wonder like well what happened you know like what happened i mean maybe it was a marketing problem or maybe it was just that like it took people time to get it you mm-hmm. know and it resonated later in yeah. a way some things are too when i worked at cannell um he created a show called unsub which stood for unknown subject and it was kind of um, it was it was a uh, manhunter basically, and I don't I think it was before the film. I'm not I can't remember, but this had to be you know this was late '80s, early '90s, and it was basically you know this team of experts who were trying to solve these crimes, and each of them had their own talent, and one of their one of the guys could like put himself in the mind of the killer and sort of become the killer and try and figure out uh, uh, you know what what the killer was up to. I don't even know if we aired anything beyond the pilot. I forget. I think we might have made six episodes. It was dark and it was creepy and it was, it was actually, I don't, I think it was actually pretty good, but no one was, was ready for that. 10, 12 Mm -hmm. years later, that kind of idea Mm -hmm. becomes, you know, popular and it's, so it's, it's, it a lot of times comes down to timing and, and whether or not the public is ready to I worked on a great show called Profit many years ago so oh, yeah. David Greenwald John McNamara created this show it was still while we were working at Cannell and it was about this kid who grew up in a box his father abused him and he grew up in a box and it said I'm not gonna remember the name but it was like Dayton and Dayton or something like that it was this company and he grew up like hating this company because he was he lived in the their one of their moving boxes or something, and he he vowed that when he grew up he would get a job there and like destroy. <laughs> and it, this was pre Dexter, so he was like the total antihero. This was um, mm. this was Adrian Pazdar. It was so good and it was so dark, and I think we made six episodes. It was on Fox when Fox first started, and Peter Roth was the head of Fox at the mm. time, mm-hmm. and Peter had been an executive at Cannes for a while, and I ran into him at one point, and I was like, because they canceled, they, we, I think they aired one or two, <laughs> and I said, Peter, why did you cancel Profit? We love it, and it was like my first chance where if it had gone, I was going to get bumped mm. up to edit, because I'd co-edited one of the episodes with Casey, and he said, Tanya, no one in Kansas can appreciate Profit. <laughs> they just can't. It's just too far away from, I hope that doesn't make paint Peter in the wrong light, but he was a smart executive. He knew he wanted something with broad appeal, and, right. and yeah, right. that television. show was not going to, you know, no. it was not going to do big anywhere outside of the big city. Flyover states, no. Yeah, no. no. <laughs> but then, you know, then you have a show like Dexter how well, many years later. Yeah, I mean, and... Yeah, that show would have been probably fine in the world of streaming, where yeah. where niche audiences can be carved out. I was curious how your process has been affected by, you know, 
so much production going towards streaming and you know orders for you know six eight ten shows up front right it's it's i think it's hard i think um i think people when they hear straight to series orders that it seems very exciting but it really means you need to know what you're doing when you start because as Mm. as the process unfolds you do get to a point sometimes where you're deep into the process and you come back and you look at the material edited together and you you realize where your flaws are and by that time you're so far into the process sometimes you can't fix them properly or efficiently and if you get lucky you know you'll slide by and you'll be able to come back and, and deal with it but um it's happened to me on a number of projects where you just you know the executives don't have time to come to editorial until deep within the production process and when they finally see the material they make realizations about what isn't working what they thought worked great on the page and what the dailies looked like and then they see the cut and they're like oh gosh we're really we really need something else here or you know in order to make the pilot work better, we need to pull these scenes up from episode five. Well, now episode five is short. What are we going to fill it with? And plus, we've told this story earlier now. So how do we fix that as we move forward? And it becomes a giant like rewrite in post. You're, you're moving scenes around. You're, you know, I recently did a scene where it was written as a completely different scene. And we we completely changed it in post. I, 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 I'm going to be broad about the subject. But let's say this one character goes to a location in search of someone she was following well that per that following that person is no longer in the story and we need that scene so what is she going there for Mm. so we had to completely rewrite what she went there for and it and we found an avenue because there was part of her story um it made sense that she was going there for that reason so we um took existing footage and we rewrote things and that scene like literally it's an entirely entirely different scene you, you, just all, you didn't have to re, you didn't reshoot anything we didn't reshoot anything that's magic dude. that's <laughs> alchemy man yeah, yeah and wow. just to give people background like historically what would happen there would be quote-unquote pilot season and a bunch of pilots would be ordered and then there would be downtime between the pilot being produced and then the tv going the show going to series and a lot of shows wouldn't make it right like right. the pilot would be shot and, and the studios wouldn't like it and that has all changed now um because they'll just come in netflix will just come in and say great we'll have like eight episodes and at a million and a half dollars an episode and go shoot it and everyone's thrilled because they get to make eight episodes yeah and they don't have to risk the downside is that they have no perspective and time away exactly and um hbo has has a model where they shoot their pilots first they don't completely finish them um they they edit them i you know they may do a a minor like temp sound mix or something like that but they don't they don't do a full mix they don't they don't necessarily bring in a composer to do all new music and they they it's still a straight to series order but they'll do the pilot they'll take a two three month break make sure they when they once they've edited it together they know what they have and they're already scheduled to come back there's no question it's not like they're going to suddenly change their minds and not do the show they've already ordered the show but that break gives them a chance to recast if necessary see where the holes in the show are or something that's not working and they can rewrite that and that way when they go back into production they can work that new material into the production schedule and they're not just like haphazardly like oh we, we, we need to write a scene for this and we we, we could, took that scene out and now we've got to have her say this and him say this so write a scene and then they write it and they shoot it and then it's like oh god that looks like what you did it mm-hmm, looks like you mm-hmm. wrote it on the back of a napkin and <laughs> <laughs> And that's not just me saying it. That's the person who wrote it saying. Oh, wait, that's my creative process, yeah. though. Wait yeah. a minute. Oh, wow. That must be yeah. painful. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it keeps a lot of hard work. work. It keeps you in work. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, um, 
you know, it's very invigorating to be able to be creative on that level and really, mm-hmm. really create, you know, you've got all this clay and, yeah. you know, it was supposed to be, you know, the bust of, I don't know, Queen Elizabeth and everyone's like, yeah, no, we got to make Trump now. Yeah. And so you got to find a way to take all the little bits of Queen Elizabeth and put them back together. As Trump. As Trump. Mussolini. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it can be fun, but it can be, you know, if it's the entire year, it's it can be pretty exhausting to, to look at, you know, 10 episodes, 12 episodes. You've, you've done it in episode one, and now you've got to do it in all 12. And it's it takes a lot of energy and, and heart and yeah. desire and... Um, is it fun for you to go on location and do your work? I mean, d- does that give like an extra thrill? It is. I, 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 um, I've not done it very often. I did. Uh, I went to Atlanta for three weeks uh, a couple years back doing a show called The Red Road, which was fun. And um, last year I was in Budapest for six months working on a, a TNT Paramount show called The Alienist, which was fantastic. And, um, the, you know, it... It's interesting to be away from your life because you can really focus. I mean, it's going to sound terrible, but you can just really focus on your work. (laughs) (laughs) I am obsessed. I really love, yeah, I love editing. I really do. It's, it is a creative outlet for me. So even on the weekends, I might gravitate to the computer to just kind of work on a scene and everyone's like, oh, you're working too much. And it's like, well, but it's actually fun and it's creative. I mean, I could find other ways to you be creative too. You have some special gene, Tanya, because like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, having sat briefly for a few hours in front of Final Cut, like just working on like small personal stuff. I'm like, okay. And then I hear editors and they're like, yeah, I'll throw in another like eight hours on Sunday because I just want to, <laughs> you know, look at this scene one more time. And that's a different... That must require well, let so me just much... stop you at Final Cut. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. That's like probably a no-no. Well, I have not. Now, Fincher still uses Final Cut as far as I know. He he made a big investment in Final Cut, and I think that he, he may be using Premiere now, but I know he, I know my f- editor oh, friends, who? David Fincher, I know oh, he, um, my friends who worked on House of Cards had to learn Final Cut. Really? Because he, I didn't think anyone used it, actually. Yeah. Oh. I, th- I don't know if he, again. I don't know if he's still using it, but but I mean, I've talked to editors and they tell me like they. Spend I don't think five the problem s- is Final Cut. I think the problem. <laughs> is, <laughs> I think the problem is me like logging that tape hour three, being like, oh. Yeah. But I mean, because it, it does record like to sit through and I mean we've mentioned this before, but like this is an extreme example, but reality television where you know there's a hundred to one ratio or two hundred one ratio of hour shot to. TV produced. Yeah. I don't know what those ratios are, but they're really high. So some editor is going to sit, right? And they're going to have to watch 100 hours of footage. Yeah. And like that. And the whole time, pay attention, stay focused, and think about what's the story here. Mm-hmm. Right? There's no script, or there's kind of a script. But yeah. I mean, that's... It's just an... I'm just impressed with the level of focus and detail that you have to maintain over time. Yeah. So, so that's the bulk work. On the other side, <laughs> working on like two or three hours for just one transition and just getting, you know, that micro work. Yeah. And that's really impressive to me, too. It's just like, wow. It, well, you know when it doesn't work. And this gives me so much respect for everyone that came before us that worked on film because those little details you had to wait for the optical to come back. I mean, if you wanted to do a dissolve between one shot to another, you had to figure out how many feet before the cut you wanted it to start and how long it had it happened before that cut and how long it lasted after that cut. And you have to know, like, for instance, if I'm doing a 30-frame dissolve, it's going to take 15 frames from the end of one edit, whatever whatever's on the film from fifth, that frame 15 frames later, and then the next incoming edit, whatever's 15 frames in front of that, 
that's what creates your 30 frame dissolve. So if, if an actor, like if you're dissolving from like an actor sitting, uh, you know, looking over the ocean and you dissolve to a sunset, if like at frame 27, the actor blinks, you're like, oh crap, I don't want him to blink. <laughs> but you've already sent this out to the optical house to make and then they've taken a day to make it and they send it back to you and you watch it and you're like, oh geez, I, sh- I should have I delayed the, the dissolve. I should have I should have pre-lapped the dissolve by two more frames so that the blink would have happened while we were coming in on the sunset. Now on the computer, you can you can do whatever you want a thousand <laughs> right. times and find that perfect right. spot and that perfect moment. So so I just want to you know for anyone listening, we're talking to anyone listening. We're talking about two <laughs> frames. We're not talking about two seconds here, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. We're talking about microseconds. Yeah. That's that's high detail. Yeah, frames absolutely matter. And some people are, I'm kind of annoying about it because I sometimes pay attention to the things that I shouldn't be when I'm just an audience member. But I <laughs> I notice, I notice eye flits, I notice mouths, where mouths are, where, and I pay very close attention when I'm editing to th- the physicality of the frame that mm-hmm. I'm editing to and from because I, I pick up on it. If I, if someone starts to move as I'm editing off of that frame, I pick up on it and it, and it bumps me. So I will wow. do my best to make sure that if there's movement in the frame that I match that movement on the incoming frame or if I don't want it, I find a way to get rid of it. And with the technology we have now, we can paint things out, we can do whatever we want. But it's, it's, I'm very, very specific on that level as well because I do feel like I don't think anybody knows what good or bad editing is necessarily. Mm-hmm. They may not know. I've had people tell me, oh, that was edited so badly. Well, it, it really wasn't. It was just not a good show. You just don't like the show. But they don't, <laughs> they don't know. And so, but I think it's a collective experience. And I think if you, if you let, something's going to bother someone for some reason and they're not going to know why. And, the, and you may look back at it and go, oh, well, because the, the person's shoulder that the camera was over, they started to talk but there were no words coming out of their mouth. And then when we edit it around to their picture, their mouth isn't moving. So you may not realize what just bothered you, but mm-hmm. what, what bothered you was you saw their yeah. mouth mm-hmm. flapping or their jaw flapping, and it just caught your attention. That shouldn't catch your attention. You shouldn't mm-hmm. be pulled out at all. You should, it just should be, like we talked about earlier, if you notice my editing, then I have failed. Yeah. Could you tell us about like one of your um, more fun uh, directors to work with when you were in Budapest? Oh, well, I worked with um, predominantly Jakob Verbruggen. Mm-hmm. He did the first uh, three episodes. Uh-huh. And then I worked very briefly with Paco Cabezas, and he's currently doing Into the Badlands, which Wait you guys a know. Wait you, you worked with Paco? Very briefly, <laughs> I worked with Paco. Yeah. And it, because because we just had Sherman just yeah, came on our show, it Sherman. was just like, Paco, Paco, Paco. Yeah. Who is this Paco? He, um, he came in and did episodes six and seven, mm-hmm. and it wasn't an episode I was supposed to work on, but mm-hmm. just the way it worked out, I took on seven. And he, I, I talked with him like, for 10 minutes and then he had to go to Dublin to work on Into the Badlands so my experience with him was through email <laughs> and paper notes and, and he I really like what he does so mm-hmm. I think he's one of these guys who kind of like you can cut my stuff together any way you want because it's great <laughs> I mean I don't know that he feels that All way right, but I, I felt that. that way about his film because yeah. he didn't really I think he just knew he, he couldn't invest any more time in it so mm-hmm. he I think he felt confident in the film that he shot and he should because it was beautiful and um uh, it was uh, ironically, it was the episode that TNT put up for 
the Emmys for oh, editing, interesting. which was which oh. was interesting because it's rare that you put up a, a, a mid episode because you, usually you put pilots or season finales up because those have the most visibility and more yeah. more people see those. As you're talking, I'm wondering, do you, are there some directors you work with where you kind of feel like they've cut it in their head before it ever got to you? Like their their visual sense is so close, is so tight. Yeah, I have. It's been a long is that time. Constraining. Um. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I will say that I have never worked with anybody who is just like, no, just do it this way. I've definitely worked with people who camera cut you, which means they don't do the whole scene from, from one angle because they know they're never going to use that shot for anywhere else but the opening of the show. Or they know that the, you know, they're never going to use this extreme close-up for anywhere else but for this ending beat. Yeah. So they, they'll, they'll limit what you can do with the footage. Right. And, you know, it's frustrating because ultimately if you do rewrite and post, you're, you don't have what you need because you yeah. don't have those, those pieces you can fake dialogue over. Um, but as far as, um, I will say, there's, because of the demand and because we can have three cameras on set all the time, the, the frustration I have as an editor right now is that I think we overshoot because mm-hmm. we don't know what we want. We don't know what we need. And a lot of times it's kind of like, here's five hours of footage. You figure it out. Tanya, fix it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. yeah, right. yeah. No, it's not. It's you, what you're talking about is real for everyone. Like in the digital world I speak yeah. with. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, whether it's audio or video, it's just like, well, you know, it didn't cost us any more money to keep that rolling for another hour. Mm. So, and then there's an expectation, well, I guess I should do something with it, right? Like, there's probably something in there right. that's usable. Um, you never know what you're going to find. I mean, that's the problem. I can't I can't afford not to look at that 10-minute take because there could be just one thing in there. Thank God. It's like one of those things where it's like, thank God they were rolling because yeah. I needed a cutaway of an actor board. And, well, there's an actor board, you yeah. know, and that only exists while the director was giving them a new note on how to do something, right, you know. Right, So it's, there's value there. It's unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like, I, I don't want them to stop drowning me in footage because more is yeah. always better than less. Yeah. But it, it's frustrating because you do, yeah. it, it, that singular vision thing we come back to, it's like. Plus or minus. There's an old story back in the old days in the 40s and 50s, you know, they, the director would say, okay, I'm going to yell cut, but and they'd say to the camera operator, don't cut, yeah. right? Yeah. And so then they'd actually get real reactions from the actors. Yeah. yeah. Or tell it. your actors not to drop out when they yell cut. Give it a give it two or three seconds, because sometimes we, we want to hang there just a little bit longer, and it's like cut, head moves. Yeah. Oh. It's a very interesting, that's a whole nother, uh, we need to have you back, because that's a whole nother world, which is there's something, not all actors, but some actors, there's something about when the scene is over, another level of humanity comes through, and that's what sometimes is even more compelling to capture. Yeah. yeah. But And that's that's a very gray, sort mm-hmm. of murky world, but, but a wonderful world. Yeah. 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 And you see a lot of that because... Yeah, there's, there's not a frame that isn't considered. And oftentimes before action and after cut, we use... Mm. stuff just because it's it's there's a natural something going on there but don't you love to see that don't you I oh, mean, yeah. I mean it's like so fascinating it's like a whole nother world opens up when they go okay yeah they go oh there's like a relaxation that comes across right mm-hmm. what, what else do you notice or it could be you know you can kind of almost tell that they're when if they haven't adjusted that they're processing what they just did and sometimes uh-huh. that can work in favor of the character because uh-huh. they're in their head and what they're what the actors really thinking is like, oh god, I really screwed that line up. 
but what we see on their face is, you know, this, yeah. the dejection or the rejection or whatever that emotion is that's on that the, the character is actually feeling. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. We need to have a round two. Yeah, round yeah. two for another day. <laughs> I mean, it, what what makes yeah when we have guests from different parts of the process, what it always makes me wish is that we could get them to teach a class for other people in other parts of the process. Like you probably don't realize how valuable a class it would be for you to teach to actors mm. no, based on like, have. like what you've seen mm-hmm. from so many takes or even to directors, you know, yeah. and, and vice versa. Like there's there. And I feel like that doesn't always happen. I'm going to ask you some closing questions. Okay. In one word, what's your favorite part of your job? Creation. Mm. In one word, what's your least favorite part of your job? <laughs> Indecision. Mm. Oof. Yeah. Oof. And my final question, if you can give a piece of advice to an editor starting out today, what would you tell them? It can be more than one word. Oh, yeah, okay. you're, you're allowed more than one <laughs> right, word. Right. It could be three sentences. You know, it's a become a director. <laughs> um, <laughs> We always joke with our friends who have their children getting into editing. We're like, w- did you not teach them properly? Do you not know what, what yeah, it is? One day I want to be vice president. It's like, oh, huh? What? Ouch. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, I get it, I get it, I get it. Um, I would say definitely hone your patience. Have an opinion. Mm. Be patient. Be a good listener. And, and always keep an open mind with the material that you're working on. Not only because it's good for your own uh, growth, but when you you want it to be fun when people come to work with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes there are some people I don't want it to be fun for because then I because I don't want them to come work. <laughs> oh, you're going to give me paper notes? Great, great. <laughs> um, but you have to really be. And I've been told this from a few people about patience and comfort. Like you want your editing bay to be a place that someone wants to come and sit and work with you for 10 or 12 hours a day. They want to like you. They want to be comfortable with you. They don't want to feel resistance. They want to feel supported and they definitely need to trust you. Mm. You know, they definitely need to know you're not chain. You know, we've all had that thing where someone gives you a note and you just are playing it back because you're, you're trying to process their note and see what you have and you play it back and they'll go. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. And you're like, "I, I didn't, do anything <laughs> i just replayed the same exact <laughs> and uh-huh. you know sometimes i go oh good great yeah and then sometimes i'll say well no actually i was just reviewing it to see what it is you you know because i don't yeah. i don't want to fool anybody i'm not right. there to yeah. be right or have the best idea i'm there to be a part of making something good yeah. hopefully and so trust is huge you really need to you know i have a thing about my cutting room i don't whatever happens in the cutting room it's like vegas it stays there <laughs> You know, you need to feel free to speak freely. Uh, you know, when I'm working in, you know, many conversations about things happen behind me, and I don't listen. I put on headsets so I can work, or, or I just tune it out so that I can work. I, I just, people need to feel like that's a place they want to come and spend the final part of their process, you know, because no one, you know, it's there's nothing like going, oh, God, i got to go sit with Tanya for 10 hours. Yeah. You know, I want them to be like, oh, cool, I'm going to go sit with Tanya. It's going to be fun. We're going to sit with you. In a dark room. In a dark room. <laughs> With no so, windows. With, yeah, <laughs> no windows. Hopefully good air conditioning. But yeah, we it's it's important, I think, to have the kind of personality and and vibe that allows for people to feel comfortable and be with you for that amount of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
because I have friends who are editors who are really egotistical and they are so opinionated and they're smart and they're good and they're talented and a lot of people just go, oh, well, they know what they're talking about. They cut this. They won this Emmy. They did that. They're just, it, it's, they're not fun to work with though. Mm-hmm. And they're not always right. You know, I think you need to, I personally feel like you can tell a story many different ways. There's a, a clip, I forget what it's called, but it's online where somebody took the same shot of a guy Camera's on him. He's looking at something. I think he first starts to cry and then maybe starts to laugh. And the person cut away to different images. And what, depending on what image you cut away to, it informed you as to what that person was actually feeling. So when mm-hmm. you see someone crying, you think, oh, what's so sad? Cut to the birth of his child. Mm. You're like, oh, it's joy. Mm. So, you know, you can, you can right. make the audience feel what you need them to feel simply by what you're cutting to and from. So to me, there's not necessarily like, it has to be this edit. Like it makes no other sense. Mm-hmm. Maybe it, why not try it being yeah. in a close shot here? You know, maybe the wide is uh, disengages. Maybe, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Context. Yeah. Yeah. Creation and indecision. Indecision. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because making choices, man, all day long, that's what you do. All yeah, day long. and you can be wrong. I, I worked with one executive producer, Joel Wyman, really smart guy, really great writer. And we would present him with th- things every once in a while. And I kind of knew, like, he wasn't sure. But he made a very confident decision. And that was just going to be it. Yeah. You know, I could I could just see on his face. Mm. But he's like, nope, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take that out. Let's move on. And and it's like, listen, whatever happens, happens. It's it's not the end of the world if that scene should have been in or shouldn't have been in. No one's going to know. That no, no one's ever seen it. Right. You know, right. so it's it's nice to have somebody who's leading the charge yeah. who no matter what can just make that decision come what may. Yeah. It's really important. Tanya, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, yeah, no, pure, this is, pure pleasure. This is such a me. pleasure. Thanks for, well, it was a pleasure. I hope... Uh, I hope this is interesting to folks. Hugely valuable. Hugely valuable.